This is episode 16 of the Immunology Podcast, T-Cell Regulation with Dario Bingali. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rout. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Dr. Dario Vignale from the University of Pittsburgh on the podcast to talk about his work studying T-cell regulation and function in cancer and autoimmunity. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up, but first... Stem Cell Technologies would like to introduce you to Immune Regulation News, a free weekly newsletter brought to you by the Stem Cell Science News Program, covering research from the regulation, suppression, and modulation of the immune system. Immune Regulation News keeps readers current with the latest news research policy events and jobs relevant to the immunology community. Subscribe for free at www.immuneregulationnews.com. So Brenda, you sound a little different today. Oh, you noticed I have some common cold on me today. Ah, okay. So you didn't, you didn't decide to like take up smoking aggressively in the last week or something. No, no, I'm not that, I'm not that desperate yet. Um, so it's just uh, some good old rhinoviruses. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, now that everyone's been wearing a mask for a year, uh, we're developing immunological debt. And so there's being, especially with kids, the people who have been sequestered away haven't had their usual uh, exposure to the milieu of human existence. And as a result, uh, people are getting more sick now because we've all been hiding away from all those antigens for the last year. I agree. It was gone. Like everything was gone for a year and something. And then he came back with a vengeance. Everyone's sick. Everybody is <laughs> terrible. It's almost like we're designed to exist in this antigenic environment and hang out all the time. Almost, right? Who knew? Who knew the immune system did so much work on a daily basis? So underappreciated. Seriously, we don't give it the credits to you sometimes, but we try in this podcast. We try. Which we try, yes. Well, do you want to start with a paper about something that we need to appreciate in the immune system? Uh, yeah, okay. I want to start today. Um talking about how it's important to appreciate the immune system and how often we have ideas that sound great in, in paper, but they don't really work out that well. Well, as a postdoc, you should know that very well, right? Yes, of course. Uh, but it's nice to see other people having these issues too. So uh, I just want to share with you a paper today that uh, talks about the results of a phase one trial for patients with B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia using uh, dual targeting CAR T cells. Um, the paper comes from the lab of Martin Pulley and Persis Amrolia from the University College London. First authors, Sean Cordova, Shimo, Shimobi Onuha, Simon, and Simon Thomas. And it's titled CAR T cells with dual targeting of CD19 and CD22 in pediatric and young adult patients with relapsed or refractory B cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia at phase one trial and it's in nature medicine. Um, so we all know that, so BALL is a, can be a very devastating disease and often, often patients can be successfully treated with chemotherapy, uh, but many times they relapse. And nowadays, it's for already a couple of some years, a novel treatment option for these patients has been CAR T cell therapy. Uh, we have two or maybe three already, uh, approved therapies using CAR T cells that are targeting a marker on the surface of these uh, cancer cells because they are derived from B cells that express CD19 as the same as normal B cells. 
also CD22 has also been used as a target for cortisol therapy. So these receptors are uh, picking up this this receptor uh, this uh, molecule on the surface of the, of the cell. The problem is that often patients relapse after treatment with CAR T cells. Usually the initial response is many times really, really good, but then eventually there is an escape, some clone escapes by downregulating the expression or eliminating the expression of CD19. And in the case of CD22, it's pretty common to see a reduced antigen density to the point that the CAR T cells cannot um, induce cell death anymore. So... Um, what they thought, the, the logic behind this, this trial was to say, well, if we are then uh, targeting both CD19 and CD22, then it's less likely that you'll find clones that are downregulating both things at the same time to escape uh, these T-cells. And so that's what they do. They generate a T-cell product that has two cars that are expressed on the same cell or from a, a bisestronic retroviral vector. And um, that they have costumulatory domains, which are not common for this, uh, the, the current generation of CAR T cells that we use now. They have a costumulatory molecule that improves the, the efficiency of this, CAR, uh, of this CAR molecule. And they're using OX40 and CD41BB. 41BB is used in one of the, in one of the already commercially available CAR T cell products. And uh, OX40... Uh, is used uh, as, a, as another receptor that's also signals to the TNF, uh, uh, the TNF receptor family of proteins. And so they actually did this on, on, on many patients. They had uh, they recruited 23 patients. So it's very interesting to see the kind of numbers that these uh, phase one trials can, uh, can get. They recruited 23 patients, but they could only uh, generate 19 cell products from 20 uh, leukapheresis that they obtained from the patients. And actually, in the end, 15 patients were infused with the cell product that they call Auto3. And um, and they use some interesting uh, automatic uh, platforms for generating this product, which I think is very more and more is being used for uh, improving and accelerating the production of these individualized cell products. And what they see, they have a dose escalation phase in which they put different amounts of cells uh, and reaching a similar dose to the, the, the traditional CD19 CAR therapies. And although they don't see, so what, what, they, what they see from these patients is one of the main issues or a really important issue with CAR T-cell therapy is the presence of uh, CRS, so cytokine release syndrome, and many patients suffer quite uh, gravely from, from this and need treatment with, for example, I, I, I antibodies against IL-6 receptors and things like that that reduce the the, the the action of these cells become so active that they can actually kill the patient, the therapy kills the patient. One of the things they see is that in this, as they escalate the dose, and sometimes they even split the dose in two, in two sittings, they prevent the, uh, the appearance of um, severe CRS, which is always a good thing. Um, but in the end, they don't. They have. They don't have a mu much better uh, overall response. So they have a really good initial response rate. Most patients have a reduction in the in the amount of tumor cells. But in the end, most of them uh, relapse again, and they see that 
Some of them don't express or express less of some of the markers, CD22 or CD19. But in this case, the main issue they observe is that the cells just don't, they don't persist in the patient enough. And in the end, they have some patients that, for example, have even normal B cells present. Uh, so this shows that often uh, there's so many different angles that you need to keep in mind for this clinical trial. So what they, the, the authors, they end up um, concluding is that the problem is that the cells are just not staying in the in the patient for long enough, uh, which is it's a shame. So they have one patient that is only one patient from the tw- uh, 15 that is still in remission, that it hasn't relapsed. Um, other patients were, were have to start, start other treatments. Some patients died. Um, most patients had a response, but it was not very durable. That's a bummer. But are they looking at ways to modify the cells so they live longer in the host? Yeah, that is, I mean, I think that's one of the holy grails of cell therapy in general, because that is the problem with many other CAR T-cell products as well and other deep types of cell of T-cell products in general. Oftentimes, they just don't persist in the patient enough to mediate uh, their function. So there are, there are many things that you can do. You can either try to select cells to start your cultures with that are known to be better at generating cells that are long-lived. So this this concept of the stem cell-like T cells that have a potential of proliferating longer and, and, and grafting better. Uh, also using some metabolic uh, interventions in the culture that reduces the amount of terminally differentiated cells from this culture. Cytokines, some cytokines have been also, IL-15, IL-7 has been associated with better cells that are better capable of, of um, engrafting. But I have to say that the jury is still out uh, on how, what is the best way of doing this. Yep. Well, always more work to do. Yeah. All right. Well, switching gears a lot. I said the segue here is that this paper is the opposite. It's almost just a, it's a descriptive paper of things that we kind of knew, but they went in more depth on. And so I've been pondering this one a lot. It's called Parallelism of Intestinal Secretory IgA Shapes Functional Microbial Fitness by Tim Rolineski is the first author. Last author is Andrew J. McPherson. And so that's an in nature. And I don't want to pick on the work of the paper. I think it's really important work, but I don't know why it made it to nature in terms of it being 100% descriptive. So they were able to you know, look at IgA in the intestines. So dimeric IgA crosses mucous membranes um, in response to all types of non-pathogenic microbiota, causes most of the antibody production in mammals. And we know that's really important for a lot of things. Um, They haven't done a lot of monoclonal hybridomas at this point. And so what they did in this paper is took recombinant dimeric monoclonal IgAs and mapped out how they functioned in response to microbial colonization with a single microorganism that required a nutrient that you have to supply exogenously to keep it growing. So that's how they can control the microorganism being present in germ-free mice. So it's a lot of work, right? The germ-free mice with the monoassociation and then inducing of these monoclonal IgAs and understanding how they work. Um, they would look at how the mice reacted to that single organism and found that different mice created different epitopes. So it's kind of like we were talking about last week with that variability, that last time we chatted with the variability that you'd see across responses. So you're seeing the same variability, 
right? You're seeing the same um, with a known antigen. You're you make your bot different people and your own person makes different antibodies to that antigen as we'd expect different epitopes. Um, and it's not the same from person to person or mouse to mouse in this case. Um, but they say that even with the same antigen, you get different epitope specificities. Um, and then, but what they did do was interesting is they showed that depending on the epitope specificity, you had different microbial metabolic alterations that would happen downstream of that. Um, so if you know these 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 epitopes will bind to different things, different antigens in the microbial milieu, and then alter the microbial metabolism. They also found that the these antibodies would surface coat and generally reduce their motility, but also limited bile acetoxicity. So they made the bacteria move less, but also limited the ability for bile acids to damage them. Um, and so they're kind of the end point of this is that the intestinal IgA system for any given microbe, and they used one single one, has lots of different things that happens. So it affects on the microbe's ability to uptake different carbon sources. It affects their ability to be killed by bacteriophages. It affects their motility. It affects their membrane integrity. And different epitopes of IgA to the same bug, to the same root antigen, generate different responses. And so it's really a tour de force in mapping this and then and how they do that so they they take these antibody deficient mice and reconstitute them with a with the um feces and then they reconstitute them as well with um injection of the antibody so they basically take antibody deficient they put in the IgA that they make they have a clone from another mouse and they can do those studies and they generated those clones by doing the original studies in the germ free mice as well. And so it's a lot of tour de force work, really, you know, again, germ-free mice, antibody deficient mice, putting those together, doing a lot of epitope mapping, figuring out how they all respond to each other. Um, so maybe that's why it ended up in nature, but it's also very descriptive. I don't think it gives me a lot of new aha moments. It gives me a lot of, okay, yeah, all the things we knew antibodies could do in the gut to different microbes are happening. I think, I guess the one upshot is that even a single antigen so the, the plethora of antibodies generated to a single antigen or single organism provides numerous parallel mechanisms depending on which antibody is generated, which epitope. And that gives us diversity. So the diversity in epitope generation that our antibody, our adaptive immune system has, generates a downstream diversity in response. And so I thought that was very interesting. I just, it, I, I'm wondering how that, how this ended up in, in nature versus like, nature immunology or nature communications or kind of that, that one step down, highly descriptive tour de force work, but I'm not sitting there with like my mind blown open by a, a massive change in the field. But maybe I'm missing something. I guess what it's interesting is that if all these mice are genetically identical, then you're really, really going to support the idea that all this variability comes from the environment because they are genetically identical. Well, and their and their recombination, right? So you know, we know that yeah. antibody recombination is deliberately uh, promiscuous and non-accurate, and so even the same, you know, twinned mice will produce different antibodies to the same antigen because the the re, you know the hypervariable recombination is going to generate different results from organism to organism. This yeah, yeah, but they are based on 
similar initial chains. Yeah. So like you have the same kind of canvas in which you, you, you place these mutations, but you would expect that there's going to be preferential groups of mutations because that's what the physics of the interaction of the antibody and the antigen right. tells you. Uh, and the starting material is always the same. So because I'm thinking, for example, in the case of TCR receptors in, in human populations that are so genetically so variable and they have so many different MHC classes that will really, really uh, limit the type of presentation of your peptide. And then you see, well, there's so much variability from the gene to the germline that, yeah, you're just going to end up with very different, with very different um uh, receptors and very dif different antigenic presentations. But I guess, of course, B cells and antibodies are detecting antigens that are not being presented. But I guess, are there polymorphisms or things that I could be modified between people that have already different starting yeah. material before the, the hypermutation? Yeah, I mean, that I yeah. think that's part of it. And like in this case, it's the same, same one. And they do see that exactly. it, it drifts, right? So they see that you have the the original change before the hypermutation. And then they see as well, though, that it's, they, they see a cluster, right? It's not like everything's mm -hmm. just a complete schmear. There's definitive, definitive clustering. So right. you do have the same inputs, genetic and antigen wise. Right. And I think at one point they restricted to it and do it, did it before the hypermutation stage as well as part of their model. I have to go back and dig. Here, if I remember right, they also did that before hypermutation and saw Probably no changes in it. Before the hypermutation, you're going to have a clusters of selected combined uh, segments that are more likely to be specific against this microbial antigens. Right. Well, they looked at it and found that, that that after introducing the antigen, this very specific E. coli that doesn't grow without the you know extra supplement, that there's no increase in somatic hypermutation to it. It doesn't drive. Okay. There's, there's no further. So you, you don't have the secondary hypersomatic mutation step in this case. You just have the regular like recombination. Yes. Okay. And that's because the mice are deficient or just because it's so good. There's already such good binding that. I think there's good binding in this case and it's an IgA system. Yeah, of course. Well. I mean, they do some, but right. But it's not the same type of right. renewal feedback, renewal feedback, somatic mm -hmm. hypermutation you get. By hanging out in the lymph tissue all day all right well i don't know i haven't read the paper so i'm not sure but it seems like they did a lot of work and i'm glad that they got re recognized by a high impact paper so more people will be bringing out that very interesting um ba basic science to big leagues <laughs> you're not you're not convinced that's okay i will move on to my second paper of the day <laughs> which i was very happy to read um, you might remember last year when the results from the phase three trial from the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, came out yeah. that, that there were, there were a lot of issues in general with AstraZeneca vaccine. And one of the latest they had was that when they showed the results from the phase three trial, they had to admit that they had made a mistake when, uh, when giving the doses to a cohort of patients uh, because apparently they realized after the fact that these patients actually received a half dose as the first of uh, the prime uh, vaccination. And But the funny thing was that when they actually looked at the efficacy of the vaccine, this group with a lower dose 
was substantially better. So the numbers were quite quite uh, impressive because uh, they had something like 90% of efficacy for this quote-unquote mistaken uh, low dose, whereas the standard dose that they actually carried through was six, uh, around 62%. So like the 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 counting all the all the vaccination was around 70% and that's where this initial efficacy of this of this um of the uh, this vaccine came out. And the fact that AstraZeneca didn't seem to really pursue further these uh results really bugged me because I it makes so much sense that if you have a better efficacy with lower less amounts of vaccine that has to be a win-win situation and there's a lot of reasons why AstraZeneca did not continue with this and we're I'm not going to start discussing uh, them now but what is really cool is that there is this paper that came out in science immunology in which they actually try to um try to model the effect of using lower doses to prime the vaccine responses to higher doses, and what's, what's the effect on the uh, induced immunity in, pain, in this case in mice, in, in murine patients. So this paper comes from the lab of Pablo Peñalosa McMaster at Northwestern University, and the first author is Sarah Sanchez, and it's titled Fractioning COVID, uh, Fraction a COVID-1985 Vector Vaccine Improves Virus-Specific Immunity. So they do this work on uh, one particular adenoviral vector, which is not the same from the uh, Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. They used a chimpanzee-derived vector, uh, so a, a adenovirus uh, vector. And in this case, they're focusing on a different one, on a human adenovirus, which is uh, adenovirus uh, vector 5, uh, which is known to be very highly immunogenic. And it's actually present, it's actually used in two different uh, vaccines that maybe most people in the developed countries have not heard a lot about, which are the CanSino and the Sputnik V vaccine. Uh, in the case of CanSino, it's a one-dose vaccine similar to the Janssen or the Johnson & Johnson, and the Sputnik V uses a two-shot, uh, two um, how's the word, a two-shot regimen. And the first one, they use the AD25, which is the same as the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, but they use the 85 for the second, for the booster shot. So this, it is used as, uh, a vector for uh, for COVID-19 vaccines. So what they do is that they test in mice how com they compare basically giving the mice two standard doses, uh, four weeks apart, or a first first uh, dose which is a thousand fold lower, and then a standard dose uh, for the booster. And so they look into the uh, responses and the CD8, ex the expansion of MH of CD8 T cells specific against a viral epitope. They look into uh, cytokine production and uh, and then the the quality of the T cells. And after the first shot of what is as expected, they see that less vaccine results in less uh, less expansion of T cells specific against the virus. They see cells are less active. But what they see, which is very interesting, is that after the booster shot, which is the same for both arms, the mice that had been uh, initially vaccinated with a lower dose perform substantially better. They have 
more expansion of secondary expansion of, of, of CDA T cells against the virus. They produce more interferon gamma. They produce more granzyme B, more Ki6. They were also more Ki67 stain. They these cells look pretty good, and what they see is that uh, the, by having when they look into the cells after the first dose, a lower dose generates more cells with what is usually consider no as a central memory markers. They're markers of such as CD62L and CD127, which is the IL-7 receptor alpha, that are associated with cells that are long-lived and capable of kind of quiescently uh, persisting in, in, the, in, the, in the organism. They, they look also that having lower, a lower dose at the start generates more, uh, more germ uh, cells in the in the spleen, more B cells uh, from the uh, from the germinal centers uh, in the spleen. They also have more uh, higher titers of antibodies and uh, and of a more a better neutralization uh, titers for the anti for these for the serum of these mice. So in general, they see they are much better starting with a lower dose. Uh, they also look that by having a lower dose, there is a lower uh, neutralization of the vector itself. They observe that a previous high dose of, of 85 generates that upon the booster, the cells that are picking up the, the new 85 vector are more likely to be, uh, to be attacked or to, to kind of disappear because they're expressing these epitopes from the from the 85 than uh, when you start with a lower dose. So they don't see clearance of the virus itself, or they don't see a reduction in the trans, uh, transduction efficiency of this virus, but they see that the cells that are transduced survive less, and therefore they cannot present the antigen uh, for that for long enough. They also, so they end up looking also for a different model. You also test a model in which they are expressing a different uh, viral epitope, in this case, the GAC protein from uh, simian immunodeficiency virus, and they see the same lower doses at the start, uh, have resulting in a better uh, response after the prime uh, with uh, the same amounts. So I thought that was really cool, and I really hope that uh, works like this will start uh, kind of nudging people to start using lower amounts of the vaccine, because I think that in general, the side effects of the, also the vaccine, and also in the case of the RNA vaccines, they're probably related to such high doses that are were done because often people think that more is better, but in this case, it looks like less is more. I was going to say more is better seems to be the uh, standard modus operandi, so it's good to see that that's not always the case. But in, interesting that I mean, you think I, I, I would think AstraZeneca would go after this because then they can like make more doses per batch of production run yeah but in the end they will be selling less vaccines so if you want to be cynical no no you, you sell go, uh, you sell the same amount of vaccine it's ten dollars a dose you're just putting half the drug in it and it's more efficacious could they get away with it yeah absolutely mm. absolutely but no i thought they're like two dollars a dose so they're selling at a cost to many right like, so now they uh, can drop how much they you can sell yeah. at a profit then by using less drug product in each there you go i mean like bing bang boom yeah yeah, I think it makes sense that also it would reduce side effects. And yeah. the problem is now, 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 and this, that's the case of AstraZeneca, but also other other vaccines such as the Johnson and Johnson that uses the AD26, you cannot really vaccinate twice. 
and, and like the other ones, because you're probably people usually think that because you already have pre-existing immunity against the vector itself, having this high dose will get you prime against the vector. And this is what they observe in this in this mice that they also see see some loss of efficiency because the vector itself is being targeted. And I think that maybe by having a lower initial initial uh, injection, you can maybe be able to successfully use a booster without losing the efficiency and efficacy. Yeah, no, I, I think it makes sense. I'm surprised they haven't jumped on it, but who knows? Sometimes you just get yeah. stuck with what you're using. Yeah, I mean, it works, don't touch it. I think that's what yeah. they're kind of, it works, yeah, now a little bit, no, but quote unquote, because with all the variants and such, I think it is time for a, for a revamp, but we'll see if the incentives are, are there. I'm not sure. All right. Well, time to hop on to our last one. This one is IL-33 induced metabolic reprogramming controls the differentiation of alternatively activated macrophages and the resolution of inflammation. It's a German group uh, in the lab of Gerhard Kron Kronke and uh, Maria Foss is the first author. I like this paper a lot. Uh, it has all the things I like in it, cytokine signaling, a specific immune population. I like macrophages and wound repair. Um, and it does a deep dive. It does have one weird thing to it that I'll get at, but I think that was a reviewer shoving their opinion into a paper. Um, so basically they show through this mapping out, we know that there's all these alternatively activated macrophages or AAMs um, that do both inflammation, resolution of inflammation and tissue repair, but how they're differentiated and how they function was not well established. They show here through a series of great experiments that IL-33 is the primary inducer. And IL-33 does then two things. It does an NF-kappa-B downrated response through MIDE88, which leads to inflammation. And that inflammatory response plus the MIDE88 signaling itself also regulates something called UCP2, which is an uncoupling protein for the uh, mitochondria to cause proton link to lead to more efficient um, uh, TCA cycle. And as a result of that process, you get more GATA3. And GATA3 transcription activation leads to anti-inflammatory behavior, resolution, and repair. And so if you block UCP, the entire effect goes away. They show it's a metabolic function. So you have a shift in metabolic state that occurs not early. So you have mighty 88 and FKPV activation. That's one step, right? So that, you know, that's still a transcription factor. That's still four to eight hours. Right. But then after that, you have the secondary not changing UCP transcription, but it'll decrease degradation. That decreased degradation leads to metabolic shifts in the macrophage. And that then leads to these other downstream effects, a high GATA state and all the other benefits. And so they do all the things, they do the right knockouts to show this. They show how um, they do the seahorse assays to show the metabolic shifts. They do single cell RNA-seq, although I'm going to slap them on the wrist because they did an N of one equals one mice each for the knockout and wild type in this case, which I was, I was impressed uh, that this paper, uh, which is an immunity, by the way, uh, got away, they got away with N equals one, comparing uh, GATA3 knockout and wild type mouse for the single cell RNA-seq in the pseudotime. Um, I don't know how they did that, but they did. So kudos to them for saving money on their grant budget. Um, <laughs> but it was, well done, and they really mapped out everything along the way. I will say one thing that confused me in the paper, but I kind of start picking up on later, is they talk about IL-4 really early. 
of like this alternative pathway. And my guess is that IL-4 can also induce these alternatively associated macrophages, but they just like shove it in in the middle of talking about figure one. I'm like, oh, and we also looked at IL-4 and then they shove it in a few other spots. And I'm wondering if that was reviewer number three or reviewer number two or whichever reviewer you want to blame today that really wanted them to talk about IL-4 and say they just shove it in a few spots to appease the reviewer. That's my guess because it doesn't seem to fit the rest of their narrative. And they could have just said, we're looking at IL-4 independent, but they like show IL-4 does this, but not this and this and not that. And here's some RNA-seq comparing um, the difference between IL-4 stimulation and non-RNA IL-4 stimulation. So maybe with RNA-seq, they, you know, hopefully the reviewers didn't make them do, it was bulk, not single cell. So maybe not, but it's cheap enough. They could have asked. I just don't get where it just popped up from. You know, I'm not an expert in AAMs and IL-4 signaling in relation to them, but they basically show that it's separate so that's you know it's clear they they specify that it's IL thirty three and IL four and do separate phenotypes. So I don't know if that's something they had to put in to like early rule it out, or maybe they were looking at that and that was the original project, and then they realized that IL thirty three had something interesting going on that was different than IL four and went down that, and so that's how they had the paper, and then they wanted to weave in the IL four data back into it. But again, really cool. IL thirty three has this early and late stage, and in the, in the, what's neat about this late stage kinetic is it's driven again by these metabolic changes so you have to have this protein accumulate the protein accumulation leads to metabolic changes the metabolic changes leads to gata 3 accumulation which is another transcription factor and so if you think transcription factor one nf kappa b is the first hit after signaling you have all these other steps to get the second transcription factor and that's how you build in an early and late stage kinetic into a signaling pathway and that makes me happy to think about things anytime we can discuss cell signaling and kinetics enzyme thermodynamic i don't care i like kinetics at any point in my life, I'm a happy person. Good. I'm glad this paper makes you happy. But yeah, I think I think probably because IL-4 it is usually associated with this uh, alternative activation of macrophage, I think, and that's why they have to put it there. I would not be surprised if they were not necessarily looking at IL-33 in the beginning. Uh, but but it's really cool to see um, how this. By by looking at the metabolism of these macrophages, how they seem to really affect their differentiation, I think that has been already described often. So it is known that this alternatively activated macrophages have a specific uh, type of, of um, metabolism. Yeah. And but it's interesting. I don't think we knew that IL thirty three could trigger this through this mechanism by affecting GATA three. Yeah. Well, by affecting the well, it affects the accumulation of a protein, and that protein accumulation leads to GATA3. Yeah. So the metabolism exactly. causes the GATA3, and that was interesting to me. Like, it was neat to see. Well, Brenda, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Dario Vignali here in just a few moments. But before we get to that, ensure reliable results with your immunology research. From primary human cells to cell isolation kits, cell culture media, supplements, and antibodies, Stem Cell Technologies provides the tools you need for every step of your immunology research. Interested in cell isolation? Use EasySep to isolate highly purified immune cells from virtually any sample source in as little as eight minutes. Cells are viable, functional, and immediately ready for your downstream applications. Learn more at EasySep.com. Joining us today is Dr. Dario Vignali. He is a distinguished professor of immunology at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. And Dr. Vignali has made great contributions in the study of T-cell uh, regulation and function, and particularly of T-rex inhibitory molecules and T-cell signaling 
in the context of cancer and autoimmune and inflammatory diseases. Dr. Vignali, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for being here. So I'll just jump in real quick. Uh, here at the Immunology Podcast, we discuss which immune cells are our favorite. Brenda's very clearly on it's a T cell. My answer is it's an enterocyte, but that's for other reasons. T cells are pretty close second for me. So I wanted to dive in right away and, you know, give us the top thing about Tregs because, you know, we, we Tregs are the T cell, the control, the bad behavior, as I like to think about it, of other T cells. And it's been a field that's been appreciated and evolved. And we've learned about, you know, we've learned about oral tolerance and their importance in autoimmunity. And yet the more I feel like we learn about Tregs, the less we know about Tregs. Yeah, it's a great way to put it. I mean, I think I'm, you know, uh, a little bit of a T-cell chauvinist in that I'm really interested in T-cells in general, not, not, um, not lacking in appreciation for the importance of all cells in the immune system, but, but spent most of our time focusing on T-cells. And as a subset, regulatory T-cells, I think the things that excite me the most about these cells is the, the sort of controlling capacity they have, the sort of, uh, you know, they're often considered the conductor of the immunological orchestra uh, and really can guide uh, not just from a suppression perspective, but from guiding the type of immune responses you can get. I think there's a number of studies that have shown that. A lot of your research on this field has been on understanding the regulation of T cells and also regulation of regulatory T cells. Um, maybe you, I was very uh, interested in talking about, for example, this molecule LAG3 that you have worked a lot on. Yeah. And others, other kinds of, of molecules are related to T-Rex. For example, neuropinin one, also you found the correlations uh, between uh, the expression of this marker and the function of T-Rex. So maybe you can talk a little bit about what regulates T-Rex and how does that correlate with other T-cell subsets and conventional T-cells? Well, that's a great question, but obviously not one that uh, can be given in a short, simple answer. I think like most cell types, uh, regulation is complex and we need it to be complex because if it isn't, then it's too easy to subvert. Um, so, you know, they regulatory T cells receive cues from the microenvironment, which shapes their behavior that can be cytokine driven, that can be cell surface molecule driven. Some of those are shared amongst others. You mentioned LAG3. So a lot of the inhibitory receptors can shape Tregs in the same way as other cells, but they also have some things that are unique like neuropillin. So I think it's really multifactorial. Uh, and the challenge is really trying to define the ones that make the biggest impact on them because those are obviously the ones that are of most interest from a translational perspective. Do you have a Mount Rushmore of like the top four or five, uh, as you said? <laughs> that really, really keeps standing out as a theme? Yeah, I mean, FOXP3 is, you know, the from a transcriptional perspective, um, you know, number one. Uh, there are obviously others that people are interested in, and I think uh, there's still a little bit of an iceberg there uh, in terms of things that haven't been interrogated to the same extent. Beautiful papers came out recently regarding TCF1 um, uh, from uh, Gunari's lab. Um, and Kazai, uh, and I think there's probably other transcription factors that are important. 
from a cell surface molecule perspective, obviously we're big fans, biasly, admittedly, of neuropellant as being a key controller. Um, I think that would be w w one of the, the figureheads in, in Mount Rushmore. Uh, maybe, you know, and I think there's also other molecules that we just don't know. I think that the iceberg is a good analogy. If, as you pointed earlier, I think the more we understand, the more we realize we don't know. And I think that's still the case with, with T-Rex. Um, and then uh, soluble factors. I mean, we know the cytokines uh, will influence them. So that would be the third head. And the fourth, I think, is only just coming to, to realization, and that's um, metabolic control. Um, beautiful paper from uh, Greg Delgoff that came out recently in Nature. I can brag about him because he was a former postdoc of mine, uh, did some of the original neuropellin work and showed that uh, lactate is used as a dominant food source in tumors, which is uh, really interesting considering the fact that glucose is considered, you know, the primary uh, uh, fuel for highly glycolytic T cells. It seems that T rex can use, uh, you know, lipids and, and other molecules as food sources, which creates distinction between T rex and effector cells. So those, those are your kind of foreheads, so to speak. Just to, for the members of the audience that might not be very familiar, what do we know about, uh, for example, neuropilin or LAC3? How are they um, affecting T cell function? And why, for example, LAC3 is kind of a checkpoint inhibitor? What it differentiates this inhibitor or a checkpoint molecule from PD1, for example? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they're definitely. Similarities and differences, as is often the case. So LAG3, to start there, um, is an inhibitory receptor in the same way the PD-1 is. It controls TCR signaling, but it does so in a different way. And even part of that, we don't know. Uh, we have a lot of unpublished data regarding how LAG3 works that isn't ready for, the, for prime time, but it's very, very different to PD-1. Uh, and that difference, taking a sidestep away from T-Rex is actually important for combinatorial immunotherapy. We want to combine things that function differently. Um, and that's why, uh, you know, so, some of the more recent data, which we can talk about if you want, uh, from a clinical perspective, combining PD-1 lag 3 inhibitors has been so exciting. Um, but going back to T-Rex, you know, fundamentally, uh, these inhibitory receptors are breaks, uh, right, to use that analogy. Um, but they're breaks in different ways. You know, some of the as the foot breaks, some as the hand break. And, and so lag three and PD-1 don't really function in a way that's different in T-Rex versus effectors. They slow them down. So if you remove them, you can release them. But all cells are prone to apoptosis. So if they get too energetic, they can die. So it's a subtle balance. Um, Neuropillin's a little different. It, it, it seems to, at least in T-Rex, control uh, some of the activity through AKT and mTOR. Um, and, and some cells love AKT. Going back to the um, metabolism angle I mentioned, T cells love AKT, whereas Tregs, they need some shown quite nicely by Hongbo Chi a while ago, but, but they don't like too much because then that actually limits FOXP3 activity. Um, so these molecules kind of uh, 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 have similarities, but also distinctions in terms of how they control regular T-cell and T-cell function in general. But that, that's really interesting. I wanted to home in on that with AKT, and I know you've worked on SREBP1, so the sterol yeah. receptor and element binding protein for, you know, it, which, which for people who don't know is a transcription factor that senses um, metabolism. 
And so I was wondering yeah. if you could dive in a little bit of that. I've done I've done some work on amino metabolism in the past and actually looking at the uh, pathways that regulate uh, phosphonostatide signaling and AKT and realizing that they really are important tuners for all types of immune function. So I'm wondering maybe if you could dive in a little bit about that before we switch to some of your, your hints at clinical trials in terms of how metabolism, because amino metabolism is this budding field, what you've seen in terms of this, especially that that TREG conventional T cell balance. Yeah, it's. I think it's a it's a great question. Um, you know, the 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 link and focus between cancer and metabolism, of course, goes back decades. When you know the development of the antifolates as the first anti-cancer drugs, and and a lot of the focus has been on the tumor metabolism. And I think it's only recently, through work from from Greg Delgoff and and, and others, uh, you know, Erica Pierce has been very active in this area, Sukek, etc. Um, you know, really trying to gain an appreciation that the metabolic processes of immune cells are also important uh, and how those are influenced by the tumor microenvironment because, you know, they're using glucose and oxygen and so they are uh, perturbed in the tumor microenvironment. But that also presents an opportunity um, because we need to do two things. Firstly, we do need to energize the cells. It doesn't matter how many switches and buttons we turn on with regard from immune modulators, if they don't have the fuel and the energy to, to commit to their anti-tumor program, they're not going to function. So I think there's a lot of therapeutic opportunities there, but also things that are different in the tumor compared to other inflammatory sites are important as it relates to immune adverse events, because, you know, if we soup up immune cells in an inflammatory site, thinking about tumors as being inflammatory sites. We don't want to, for instance, induce IBD or other inflammatory things. So if there's something that's unique in the tumor that's different from a sort of a conventional, regular inflammatory site and other sites of the body, um, perhaps leveraging the fact that there's differences in amount of oxygen, amount of glucose, might create things that are a little bit more selective for the tumor microenvironment. And that on that note, what do you think are the most exciting current kind of translational trials or translational research really looking into moving this knowledge about immune, so metabolism uh, regulation into the clinics? Yeah, I think there's a sort of a plus and minus there. You know, the the, the plus is that I think there's really exciting opportunities, but but a lot of those have not yet got into the clinic. And in fact, I think we're still grappling with, okay, now we've appreciated the concept. Now we have to think about developing targeted therapeutics. Um, and that lag is sort of normal in, in the process of thinking about therapeutic developments and maybe, you know, four to five years away, maybe less, maybe more. I think the only things that are entering the clinic is, is not so much things that might specifically target a metabolic pathway in a cell, but repurposing of drugs that can change the microenvironment. So for instance, you know, again, keeping going back to my, my uh, previous trainees, but Greg Delgoff showed that uh, use of a, a repurposed type two diabetes drug metformin um, can uh, increase uh, oxygenation uh, uh, in, in the tumor microenvironment and promote, promote an anti-tumor immune response. So those are things that can be put into the clinic and their ongoing clinical trials to try those combinations with anti-PD-1. So those are the things we can do quickly. 
Uh, things that are going to be more sophisticated in the surgical are probably going to take a few years to get through to the clinic. So, so I'm going to take us a step from from clinic back to mice because yeah. to be able to do the clinic works, you need good mouse models to figure out what's going to work and what's not. And this kind of goes to your more recent paper, which which is frankly a really cool paper. So I just want to say that this this mouse that you have in immunity is pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, and people should read the paper. But I was wondering if you could, A, give kind of a, a high-level view of this, because you did this really unique combination of alleles to, to be able to finally target conventional CD4 T cells. And yeah. maybe you can explain, like, in a sentence <clears throat> or two, the problem behind why you needed to do it, and then explain yes. it. And then in the midst of this, if you could also let the audience know, like, like having bred mice myself, that there's a lot of work that's just, like, one sentence, like, we made a mouse which is, you know, <laughs> three or four or five years. So if you could even describe a little bit kind of so people can see behind the curtain, like what it took to, if you're willing to, what it took to get the damn alleles <laughs> ready to go to yeah. then cross with each other. Yeah, so there's a, you've touched on a couple of interesting points there. Um, so, so first of all, you know, I think the audience will appreciate that as we think about the scientific challenges, we really want to be focused on the scientific question and the hypothesis, right? Uh, rather than, hey, this is a cool tool. Now, we're, what are we going to do with it? But at the same time, I think we all appreciate that discovery is enabled by having the right tools. And I think one of the challenges is we, as we went through an era of generating a whole set of cool Cree tools, we started to realize that there are some subsets, whether they be T cells or others, that don't you have a unique gene that can define just that subset. You know, CD4 uh, and FOXP3 were great, but how do we get beyond that? And there, there are no genes that are only expressed in CD4 effector cells. And so we have to be start thinking about more sophisticated ways to create Cree lines that are restricted in their uh, uh, expression. And so we took a leaf out of a couple of studies which have used a process called allele conditioning uh, to generate this male. So that in principle, it's just simply where you have one gene uh, or one allele that influences the behavior of a second allele. And so we did this by putting a, by using two different recombinases. Uh, first, we put in a flipase uh, uh, which is uh, functions in the same way as Cree recombinase, but just recognizes different flanking sequences and put flipase into FOXP3. And then secondly, created a mouse that expressed Cree just in CD4 cells, but had that flanked by Fritz sites. So in the presence of FOXP3, that was deleted. So it was now not expressed in Tregs and was only expressed in CD4 effector cells. So that way we could have a Cree that's only expressed in CD4 effector cells. It does complicate things because now you've got two alleles that you have to breed in combination. And anybody who's done these sorts of things knows that if you then combine it with two, one or two floxed alleles, now you have a quad. And if you want a Rosa reporter, that's five. And, you know, it's, it's you, as you point out, it's easy to say, we made this mouse. But to breed that actually probably takes about in a year and a half. Um, and, and we can accelerate all kinds of things now. It's amazing what we can do scientifically, but unfortunately we've not found a way to accelerate mouse breeding. Um, so, you know, it used to take a year to make a mouse using recombination. That's how we started. Now with CRISPR, you can actually make them in two or three months, but it's still a long process. 
Well, and I'll I'll just point out real quick. CRISPR only sometimes works to get the Cree in, or or what have you, or the Flox well, tags. I, Not the Cree, but the Flox tags. It's I've had real little hit or miss depending on the gene. So you you know you you're right. It's it's not as simple. Uh, but I have to say the technologies have improved a lot, and our hit rate is actually quite high. So the last couple of mouse strains that we've made, we just made. It's kind of secret because we just made it a new Cree RT2 lock-in, we got 12 mice and three of them were knock-ins and they're correct. That was just with the first injection. So so I think at least at our core, we're on a bit of a roll. Hopefully I'm not jinxing the whole thing and everything will fail from here on in. But I think there's been a lot of intense activity around improving Cree approaches because people know how powerful the technology can be. That, that it's improved substantially, even for putting in big things like CREAT2 and GFP and, and things like that. So you should ask, ask him for a protocol, Jason, for future reference. Yeah. Or the, sure. or the core at a place I no longer work at, but you know, yeah. Well, maybe you could do a podcast with uh, Sebastian Gringas, who runs ours. Uh, he's a genius with these things, and he could probably uh, tell you all kinds of cool tricks and tools. There you go. So just as a kind of, a, what is the, what are the kind of questions or what kind of approaches can you do with this mouse that you couldn't do with like the traditional CD4 log, uh, Cree versus FoxP3 Cree and see how those compare? What are you, what are your plans with this mouse? Yeah, great question. So, you know, I think one of the challenges of trying to manipulate things in CD4 is, is First and foremost, the fact that you're also influencing T-Rex and they're often working against each other. So it makes the interpretation complicated. Um, but I think for us, you know, at least as it relates to the field of cancer immunology, you know, the field has been totally focused, understandably, on CD8s. They're the primary drivers of anti-tumor immunity. Uh, and so it's understandable that we've been focused on that. But I think there have been a number of studies in the last Five or six years ago, maybe people reopened Janeway and Reut and realized that CD4s exist. You know, it's amazing how immunologists like to reinvent what they knew for, for decades, right? And, oh, CD4s are important. You know, they don't only guide and educate uh, B cells, but they also help uh, CD8s. And, and they play a role in antitumor immunity. And we've not really interrogated them in terms of how they do it. Is it exactly the same as CD8s? Do they do things in different ways? And so to be able to address those questions, we need tools where we're surgically um, manipulating just CD4s to ask some of those questions. I have one last question I really wanted to kind of bring up, and I think you're a great person to talk to this. I want to hear more about what is T-Rex fragility and how does that affect mm -hmm. our understanding of yeah, T-Rex, for example, in cancer or in other diseases? Yeah, great question. Thanks for that. Of course, I could give a whole podcast on that, but to keep it short, um, you know, uh, uh, maybe a quick comment about terminology here, just uh, so the audience is, um, you know, on, on, on the same page. So the term that's been used most frequently as it relates to regulatory T cells, as you know, is stability. So when I mean, people talk about Treg stability, which is an important topic, uh, they're mostly talking about uh, loss of FOXP3, that when you lose that key transcription factor, the Tregs lose a lot of their identity 
Um, uh, and that can be a good thing if you want to subvert them in cancer. It can be a bad thing in autoimmunity. And indeed, you know, lack of Treg stability is a concern. And it's also a, tra a translational relevance, particularly with people who are trying to do uh, develop therapies for autoimmunity. They don't want their Tregs to lose that identity, not only because of the danger that, well, you don't have Tregs and they don't work anymore, but the concern that they may become something pathogenic because there is a, a greater a sense of recognition of self by regulatory T cells, at least ones that haven't been engineered to have a specificity for some particular antigen. And so the concern that they might start attacking the body. So, so that's the whole stability thing. Um, when we started working with neuropillin, uh, we kind of originally thought, oh, they lose neuropillin and become unstable. But we realized that actually that's not the case. These cells maintain FOXP3 function, they maintain most of their Treg identity, so uh, that, that we needed a different term, and so coined fragility, <clears throat> because they lose their suppressive capacity, but they maintain their identity. They maintain FOXP3 in that. So I think fragility from our perspective is an exciting concept, because if we can uh, turn off the suppressive capacity of regulatory T cells without risking them becoming order reactive to self, that might be the kind of holy grail. And so we're very much focused, not only as it relates to, to neuropillin, but trying to identify if there are other things that will drive fragility, but not instability. For example, there's interferon gamma. <clears throat> in, so you have both yeah. can induce fragility, but T-Rex can also produce interferon gamma. How does that work? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for, for raising that because uh, one, one of the more recent papers we had from a super talented uh, grad student in my lab who happens to be married to Greg, uh, Abby Overacre Delgoff, um, showed that gamma interferon uh, is a key driver of, of Treg fragility um, and, and neuropelin is trying to oppose that by giving them you know, uh, more stability, I guess is one way to put it. Um, but indeed, you kind of raise uh, a bit of a conundrum because they, Tregs do make gamma, not a large percentage, but they do. Um, and, and we're still trying to understand what that means in terms of Treg function. Is it a sort of a auto-regulatory loop? Uh, not, not an unusual concept in immunology, of course. You know, sometimes the cells will make the things that can turn them off for control. Or is there some other purpose for this? The short answer is we don't know, but I think it's going to be interesting to investigate over the next year or so. So talking about the stability, which is a newer concept to me, I, I wonder if it answers a question of something that's always bothered me, which is there's no T-cell leukemias or not T, there's no T-reg leukemias, right? Mm. There's, there's no, there's no, you don't have, I mean, sure, there's a rare case probably, but when we think about, you know, yeah. lymphocytic leukemias of some form. We don't have Tregs. Do you think that could be related to the fact that they're instable so as soon as something goes screwy with, without without getting too deep in, that instability yeah. makes them flip out and so you're not running around with you know clonal expansions of bizarre FOXP3 positive Tregs. It just doesn't do that. Uh, yeah, it's an in, I mean, it's an interesting question, not something I have any uh, hard data on, but it's interesting to hypothesize, right? Um, you know, it could, there's a couple of things. Uh, it, it could be a, a numbers game, you know, there's far less Tregs, so the frequency might be a lot less. 
Um, I think the point you raised may be the most critical one, that, that FOXP3 is a repressor and therefore for a leukemia to develop, it would downregulate anything that it sees as a repressor. Uh, so, so it may well be that if you, for instance, if you had a constitutive expression of FOXP3, that that would simply prevent leukemic development or leukemogenesis and therefore, you know, tumor cells that came out of that would find a way to repress or delete or inactivate FOXP3 in some way, right? Yeah, no, I think I, th I think I think that's where my brain was going is, is I'm wondering if yeah. this concept's linking to like the clinical absence of something is often really important when you think about physiology, like you just don't get yeah. some things. And mm. so that tells you a lot sure. about, about yep. the biology. Yeah, thank you. Yep. Uh, I think Brenda, you're up to bat here. Yeah, no, I just I, I, I just could talk about T-Rex all day. Um, I think the listeners have heard that many times from me. Um, <laughs> I'm just it's it is fascinating also to to look further into how T-Rex actually are doing the work and what are the, the 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 kind of signals that they are actually giving. I think your research has really worked a lot on that. So we mentioned uh so also things like, such as IL-35 that you also have been working a lot on that. Uh and I think it's I really like I really like the concept of understanding also the, the stability of T-Rex and the kind of signals that make give them identity and give them function. So it's was it was very interesting uh to to have this conversation. I thought it was, was really great. Um so at the end of the of our conversation, we usually like to talk to uh, ask a little bit of questions out of, out of the box to our guests. And so what we call the fun questions of the end. And so we were giving Mayu uh, free range to ask. Uh, so we're going to ask, for example, if you were not a scientist, mm -hmm. what would you be? <clears throat> um, well, it depends probably at what age you ask me that, um, you know, because uh, when I was young, I wanted to be a football player, professional football player. That's soccer for um, for uh, the American audience. Uh, however, when I got to five, I realized that wasn't going to happen. Now, a little older than that, but uh, no, actually, when I was young, I wanted to be a doctor, a, a physician. Um, but, uh, you know, sadly, I was sort of young and naive and didn't work hard enough at college. And so ended up taking the, the, the research route. But I think actually, in the end, I'm quite happy with the position I'm in, because I think one of the uh, important uh, uh, things for research scientists to, to know and understand, and I'm sure many of them do, is that by developing therapies, we can impact the lives of uh, far more people, right, than, than any physician could see on a kind of day-to-day -day basis, uh, not to, 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 to limit the, the amazing things that our frontline workers do, but I think researchers are can play an important role in that regard um, by, by developing therapies, uh, diagnostic tools, uh, ways to identify patients that respond to therapies. I think there's a lot of laudable things that we can do and we should focus on that. And in this day and age of COVID, it's been absolutely remarkable to see how rapidly uh, vaccines have developed, how amazingly potent they are, uh, and 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 it's a sort of a testament to immunology as a field and what we can bring to uh, uh, the clinic through therapies. 
I, I very much emphasize with that point about uh, what researchers can do, having been unable yeah. to decide, done both, and then yeah. in the end landed yeah. on the on the science to add side. One more thing to what you said, Brenda. More recently, you know, everybody has their kind of COVID-induced stories. Like, okay, you had the shutdown and you couldn't do anything else but do things remotely. What? So I actually started brewing beer. Uh, going back to, you know, a college who'd brew beer because, well, it was expensive and it was cheaper to brew it yourself, right? But but now uh, I just brew it for fun. So, you know, what started off as a, you know, a small one gallon thing has grown into, you know, I'm doing, uh, you know, five gallon uh, brews, putting them in kegs. I've got some taps in my bar. It's fun. You know, it's, can I order it's, online? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. But, you know, it's it's, it's an extension of uh, chemistry, isn't it? Right. You know, as scientists, we like to concoct things. I think that's why some scientists like to cook. You know, it's uh, and it's an extension of that. It's microbiology. Exactly. Yes. All the yeast, you know, and all the, the, the different yeast uh, esters that can be generated and how how that can create really fruity, hazy IPAs if, if fermented at a high temperature and all that kind of good stuff, you know. Yeah. Very oh, nerdy, but fun at the same no, time. Absolutely. All right. I now have... want a beer. It's a, it's a very <laughs> popular hobby among scientists, I have to say. I've heard yeah. a lot of, and I've tried a bunch of uh, homemade beers, and they're pretty good. And they also have a special flavor, you know, of like he's person made it. It's really nice. So, well, yep. cheers yep. to that. There you yes. go. Cheers to that. And I have one follow up question, which sure. is uh, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Oh, uh, well, you know, I think, um, I don't know, peace, peace and tranquility and, and lack of anxiety. I think that especially at the moment, people uh, are getting very anxious. Uh, I think people's mental health is going down. Um, and, and, you know, I think there are a lot of challenges nowadays, especially for younger people. Um, and, and so if I had the power of turning people from half glass empty to half glass full, then I think that would make a difference, right? Uh, we, we, we can't always change um, the challenges that we face, but we can change our perception of them, and it helps us to get to a better solution. So a hybrid of Deanna Troy from Star Trek and Professor Xavier. On yes, all benevolent. Be there you go. <laughs> That's that's a very that that's a very nice uh, way of putting it. I think it's how 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 has it been for you and your lab and your environment over there to to go through this year and how have you supported the people in your lab through these tough times? In your opinion, well, you know, uh, I've tried. Whether I've succeeded, I guess you'd have to ask them. You know, I think it's difficult, especially when, of course, you're talking to people, well, at least initially remotely. Uh, it's it's harder to connect with people remotely than in person, although I think the improvement of the video conferencing has helped. You know, I think you just have to try to keep people positive and motivated and and trying to uh, get them to focus on uh, what they're achieving rather than the timeline that they're achieving. I think there's a lot of stress with the timeline. Kind of goes back also to um, you know, a time when I was younger, when I was a postdoc and a grad student, you know, every week I'd open nature and I'd see all these papers and it, I, I would just feel stressed because ha every week I'm seeing something new 
and and I can't work that fast. I need years, and these people are coming out with stuff every week. But it's important to realize that that paper you're seeing each week may have taken several years to develop. So it's not that you're going slower than everybody else. It's just that science takes time, um, and, and and we have to try to disconnect ourselves a little bit from the time and just focus on uh, each week. Have we done something valuable and important and and uh, productive? And as long as we feel at the end of each week that we've been productive, we should be happy with what we're achieving. You know. I think that's a great way to end the podcast on that note of uh, that, that okay. very valuable piece of advice. Stay Absolutely. positive, stay happy. That's just, we can always hear that. That's always important to bring up, uh, to stay yeah. positive. And I think for researchers, it can be hard sometimes to do that. Yeah. And you have to also try to have some fun, you know. So this weekend, we're having our Oktoberfest party. I've got four German beers on tap. Uh, so hopefully that whets everybody's appetite to, to have fun this weekend and then be energized uh, when we get to the next work week. Perfect. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you again so much for, for talking to us today. It was a great conversation. And well, enjoy enjoy your Oktoberfest celebration then. Yes, definitely. And thanks for, for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to the two of you, to the audience. And uh have fun, stay safe, and be happy. Thank you very much. Thank you. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time.